welcome to another edition of Expanding Minds. I'm your host, Eric Davis, and we'll be plugging away at our uh, continuing explorations of the cultures of consciousness. Um, one of the things I think is very peculiar and interesting, sometimes disturbing about our age, is that most of us still manage in some ways to, you know, live our mundane human lives, get up and have breakfast and move our bodies through space and deal with traffic and pay bills and this kind of realm and, you know, interface, of course, with this exploding, wonderful, bizarre, overwhelming, addictive, necessary, or at least increasingly necessary uh, virtual environment. But the boundaries between these two worlds are constantly shifting, just constant the sense of a kind of surface of uh, uh, recognizable, mundane, ordinary human life and, and constantly abutting against this really extraordinary science fictional, multidimensional domain of data, flow, computer power, eyes everywhere, recordings everywhere, and inhabiting it all, increasingly intelligent algorithms, processing, creating, moving, changing, perhaps growing, perhaps ultimately or perhaps soon, thinking. Uh, and we're going to explore some of this uh, boundary today. I think everyone has been wrestling with it a little bit more in the last um, month or so with the Snowden revelations, and I think that uh, uh, people who don't necessarily normally think about the consequences of and the conditions of their own uh, digital activity, their own relationship with large uh, databases in the cloud or with their the, the track and traces they leave as they move through space are now much more aware on a much more existential level of how peculiar things are going and how uh, very, very large-scale historical forces are, are slugging it out like the uh, robots in Pacific Rim. And we're sitting there looking at the... Um, at the situation in the very fabric of our ordinary lives as we get online and communicate with our devices and try to wrestle with it all. So to, uh, to help us uh, uh, plot our way through some of these issues today, we're going to be talking with uh, two folks, um, Kevin O'Connor, or KMO, as uh, we know him here on Expanding Mind. He's been a guest a couple of times. Of course, KMO is the is the uh, the host of the Sea Realm as, uh, as well as other uh, podcasts, which is a, a, an excellent, uh, probably my favorite podcast out there. And uh, he once was an employee at, at, at Amazon.com, so he can he can do the uh, do the tech talk. Uh, and he's going to be providing some uh, big picture uh, analysis for us. And also, we're going to be talking with um, Tom Barbalet. I hope I'm, hope I'm pronouncing his name. Uh, who's who's fascinating? Done fascinating work. Uh, with this artificial life process and, and environment, really, uh, called Noble Ape, and is currently uh, taking these, this A-Life uh, terrarium uh, onto the cloud, and so that we'll be talking about issues that are raised by the cloud. What is the cloud? How does it differ from the Internet? What does it mean when this space be becomes inhabited by increasingly intelligent algorithmic Life. Uh, what are the consequences of and possibilities of artificial life in the environment of the cloud? And uh, uh, Tom and Kevin are going to be presenting 
some of this material along with uh, Larry Yeager, who works at Google, uh, at Netflix, um, coming right up uh, on August 19th. And so that's partly why they're, uh, they're, they're talking with me today, and I'll be you know, fascinated to hear uh, what the, the different angles on this um, you know, bizarre and marvelous situation that we're all facing. And um, so with that, we'll uh, bring them on. Uh, Tom and uh, Kevin, well, welcome to Expanding Mind. Thank you. Good to be back. Great. Good to be on. Excellent. Everyone's, everyone's on. Uh, it's working out well. So I, I thought um, since uh, uh, there's a lot of very interesting things about your work, Tom, it might be a good place to start off is just give people a, a little sense about uh, what your particular work has been with um, artificial life with with noble ape and what you've been uh, working on with that simulation. I know you've been working on this stuff for a long time and and uh, and banging out the philosophical and, and political implications as well as uh, the technical uh, challenges. And maybe just starting off with some of that, and then we can move into the cloud and the and the newer issues. So back in 1996, I started developing noble ape, and I was a 19-year-old university student in Canberra, Australia, uh, considering, well, I was doing two degrees at the time. I was doing a physics degree and a philosophy degree. And through the physics degree, I was getting a kind of rich mathematical texture for the you know, ability to simulate a wide variety of things. And truth be told, my background in the kind of early 90s, I'd written antiviral software for the Australian government and actually... Uh, cross paths with a young Julian Assange and various other things. So I, I had the kind of interesting philosophical and political background associated with computation and simulation uh, already. But it came together in Noble Ape because I had a, uh, a fellow philosophy student, a, a sparring partner, who said, well, Tom, you always talk so optimistically associated with the ability of computer simulation and the ability in particular to create interesting philosophical paradoxes for various philosophy of mind uh, discussions that were going on in, in the philosophy classes that I was attending. So I created the Noble Ape simulation with a variety of different pieces of software that I'd already worked on. The original idea of the simulation was to simulate a, a small troop of apes on an island. So that was not only to simulate the external environment of the island, the rich biology, uh, elements of the ecosystem, the plants, the animals, the fish, the tides, all these kind of elements associated with the island, but also initially a cognitive simulation which represented the abstract ideas of fear and desire that kind of drove these primates over the island. So if we fast forward about 10 plus years, um, a variety of engineers uh, at Apple uh, Computer, as it was at the time, now Apple as it is now, and Intel had used aspects of the Noble Ape simulation, in particular this cognitive simulation, to do analysis on processing architecture and also real-time graphics. And I, as you do with open source projects, um, met a, a fellow called Bob Mottram, who was an industrial roboticist in the UK and had done a lot of studying associated with social robotics in particular. And uh, he started working on Noble Ape and started bringing in this social simulation aspect to it as well. And we both had interests in linguistics and the way, you know, particularly in terms of modern human society, that language drives a lot of the interactions, a lot of the discussions associated with politics and even existential reality comes through language. 
So Bob and I worked together to create a, a language simulation that is now part of Noble Ape as well. So I guess for your listening audience, Noble Ape could be sort of in some regard like a, um, a, an ideas clearinghouse and simulation uh, to create an environment where you have these sentient entities that move over a landscape and interact and have conversations and live their lives and eventually, you know, pass away and, you know, leave family legacies and all these kind of interesting philosophical concepts in a computer simulation. Bring on the cloud as a phenomena and you have an environment where rather than talking about individual computers or even small networks of computers, you have basically almost unlimited resources and I guess we'll talk about the cost or lack of cost of the resources perhaps later in, in the hour. But um, through that, the potential for these kind of simulations to move into something that are far greater um, than, you know, just running on individual or even, uh, you know, small clusters of computers. It's a very, very interesting um, landscape. And some background associated with the philosophy of my work uh, in about 2005, I started interviewing a series of artificial life academics and practitioners through uh, an organization called Biota, available at biota.org. And through this, I realized that there was actually a kind of broader philosophy of simulation and a wide variety of folks, um, a fellow at the Santa Fe uh, Institute uh, called... Um, Oh, I can't think of his name, sorry. But anyway, a fellow at the Santa Fe Institute and a variety of other practitioners were starting to move into this idea of simulation science. Stephen Gurin is his name. Uh, and through this came a very strong critique of the uh, Ray Kurzweil et al. kind of technical singularity narrative, which puts the technical singularity at some time in the future. Through a variety of factors in, in the kind of philosophy of simulation that I've developed with these other uh, practitioners in Biota, it actually looked like the technical singularity had occurred considerably earlier. I mean, potentially sometime in the mid to late 80s associated with the amount of comp computational power that was available. Well, well let's, let's so we stop there and just, let, let, I just want to back up just a little bit because this is, yeah. you know, I think a lot of our listeners are going to be familiar with uh, the notion of the singularity, of a technical singularity. But at least in my understanding of it, uh, that the effects of it would be uh, so noticeable that the notion that it had already occurred is sort of, you know, runs against my model of what people mean by the singularity. So perhaps it would be good if you would uh, clarify what is at issue, perhaps more technically than I am, with the idea of the singularity such that it could, could be the case that it already happened. The question revolves around the idea of intelligence and the anthropomorphic divide. So the narrative that we are told in, you know, popular science journalism is that there is this paradigm associated with neurons and processes and that basically even if you get blocks of computers together, they are still a small fraction of the kind of neurological elements that make up humans. And... That is so far removed from the problems of intelligence, particularly that simulators encounter. There's a, there's a parable that I tell where two horses are sitting on a hilltop and they're looking down to a roadway. And they say, well, sure, those cars are fast, but they'll never actually be horses. And there's a strange kind of 
biological, you know, uh, kind of paradoxical element associated with the way intelligence is described to folks who want to feel comfortable associated with what vast quantities of processing actually means. So, so to, but to, if you like, parse out, parse out the analogy, it's that uh, humans are sitting here looking at this incredible technical development, you know, all of this complexity emerging, et cetera, et cetera. But because we're stuck with an idea, a human, uh, an anthropocentric idea of what intelligence is, we're still like, oh, these, these things are getting smart, but, you know, we're, it's, we're still a ways away from when they're actually intelligent in the way that we model it. Whereas if you take another metric of what intelligence is, we can look at already existing systems of complexity that are non-human and go, whoa, those things look like they're already intelligent. Am I yeah. following it? And the metric here is associated with survival as opposed to any other metric associated with intelligence. So I talked to a paleobiologist. He actually works with trace fossils called Roy Plotnick uh, maybe five or six years ago. And this was really the missing piece of the puzzle for me personally, because in the analysis of trace fossils, in the analysis of what occurs in the Cambrian explosion, although he doesn't like me to use the term Cambrian explosion, but the Cambrian period, where all these amazing kind of crustaceans kind of irked from moving between feeding grounds to actually being, you know, complex seafood, you get this uh, amazing development of survival intelligence. And this, I think, is what is really lost in the kind of, as you say, the, the human-centric discussion of intelligence. Because if you use survival as the key metric, you start to realize, I mean, particularly through things like the recent financial collapse, that you actually have metrics that you can apply back to humans to show that the systems that are being created are far greater in a means of survival intelligence than the individual humans, even the individual human contributors. And that basically breaks down the, uh, the kind of strange dichotomy between, you know, machines and humans associated with intelligence. Interesting. So what do you think it is, since I, I'm no, no doubt you've been in, in all sorts of discussions with, uh, with, with singularity folks, what, what is it that, that makes that dominant narrative um, so persistent? Because to me what you're saying makes a lot of sense. It, it seems, uh, to my way of thinking, the way I think about systems uh, perhaps much more loosely than you do is that I, it's, I'm, I'm already willing to ascribe a great deal of, of uh, intelligent persistence to these somewhat abstract systems, even uh, corporations have kind of a life of their own, and we can talk about how is that constructed through uh, legal processes as well as, you know, institutional realities, information networks, et cetera, et cetera. You know, there's all ways of characterizing different kinds of, of life in this sort of abstract modern uh, context we're, we're in, and yet the singularity narrative is so pronounced and so captivating both for haters and for lovers uh, of the model, what do you think is what? What is it? What is it? What is that attachment? So, periodically through doing biota, I have tried to get interviews with with prominent singularity folk. I mean, Nick Boster and Ray Kurzweil are obviously the two most prominent associated with kind of philosophy and and you know dominance in the in the discussive force, for want of a better term. And unfortunately, I've had no success. Now, 
the, the singularity folk have been very positive associated with promoting conscious in the cloud, which is the talk or the series of talks that will come from where KMO, Larry Ager and I are starting in about a week's time. And my hope potentially through having these kind of open talks is that they may actually come into the fold. The closest I've gotten to these kind of discussions are with H-plus folk who are kind of on the fringes of the, the singularity you know, broader community. But no, I would dearly love to have these kind of discussions with folks who have, you know, written and sold books in the field and folks that are framing the narrative because I think actually modern simulation provides such a beautiful and rich critique to a lot of what they have written that actually I think it's a, it, unfortunately it's a conversation that's yet to be had. Well, can I, can I push you on this just a little bit more to, to unpack that sure. statement? In, in what ways does simulation generally take and uh, undermine the, this, this narrative we have of driving towards this singular point of the machines becoming self-conscious and intelligent and producing da-da-da-da, uh, becoming intelligent? How, do, how does simulation sort of uh, tug against that narrative or, or, or really uh, critique it? You realize very quickly that you don't need a lot of processing power to actually simulate quite detailed environments. And that is basically the seed that goes against chapters of Kersel's writing. The notion that you actually, in order to create a visibly rich contextual society, you can return to, you know, four or five very basic variables, which is the work of Century of Brazil at MIT in social robotics that Bob Mottram brought into, into Noble Ape when he first started working on it. I mean, I think simulation has moved in such a distinct direction to this popular narrative that it is actually really very curious that there is such a large divide because I think there's still a lot of rich and interesting philosophy to be had in the kind of descriptions that I'm offering, particularly associated with survival intelligence. In fact, it really moves to the point where the discussion, you know, has, <laughs> has been lacking basically for, you know, at least the past decade worth of simulation development. Yeah, well, this is wonderful stuff. I want to I want to get to uh, to KMO here, and um, uh, well, I mean, we're going to get into some broader discussions about the implications of the cloud later. But just in in, in terms of, of of Tom's work and this question of um, how the robustness of of simulation models, our, our capacity, the way in which our society already runs on simulation models in a lot of ways really qualifies this kind of notion of the, of the singularity in a, in a really significant way. And I'm, I'm curious to hear how you see it from, from your uh, curious uh, point of perception. Well, I, I hope you don't mind if, if my answer comes at your, your question a little obliquely. Please. Uh, I am sitting outside in Santa Fe, New Mexico right now. It is a beautiful day. I'm happy to be here. And I'm here because I'm doing another Sea Realm couch surfing tour. And uh, this is where I just announced on the podcast that I want to do a tour in this particular direction at about this time, and people volunteer to organize events for me in the places where they live. And uh, just out of this, with a lot of back and forth and communication, a schedule emerges. So the, the first talk on my, my tour is going to be next week in uh, Durango, Colorado, and then I'll be moving on to Murphy's, Col or Murphy's California, and then to the Bay Area where we'll do the, the talk with, with Larry Yeager and Tom Barbelay at the, the Netflix Auditorium, and a lot of what I'm going to be talking about is sort of a refutation of what I have been 
purveying via the Sea Realm podcast for a few years, which is what I like to call doomer porn. The idea that um, civilization, industrial civilization, technological civilization is so corrupt, so inept in its operating, uh, just so wasteful of resources that it just can't last. And it, people like to, they are attracted to this notion of a fast collapse. And for a while, I've been giving a, sort of a free pass to people who were articulating the fast collapse via peak oil narrative. And I've come to put that narrative into a class of other narratives, like the uh, the Book of Revelation, or at least modern interpretations of it, which envision a, an upcoming apocalyptic event, uh, the rapture and whatnot, or the technological singularity, which in a, in a day or an afternoon or a very compressed period Artificial intelligence is going to wake up. It's going to proliferate wildly. It is going to uh, take control, sort of take the baton from biological humanity and be the next leg of the race and run much, much faster than we ever did. And at that moment, things change completely. And I think that all of these narratives are very similar in that they all posit an upcoming event which basically wipes the slate clean. All existing injustices, all existing unjust power hierarchies are dissolved in an instant, and something replaces all of that, which is very much to our liking, be it, you know, if we like to the idea of everybody gardening and growing their own food and living in walkable communities and interacting with people face-to-face, then the peak oil collapse narrative is, is very exciting. And if what excites you is uh, a very sort of hardcore libertarian philosophy with uh, technological enhancements of human capabilities and uh, an equal, you know, simultaneous wiping the slate clean of, of previous injustices, previous failures, previous human foibles, then the singularity answers to that just as much as the book of Revelation or the current interpretations of the Book of Revelation, answer to people who are really disgusted with the current scene because of its immorality or because of its triviality or because of its materialism. And, and so I see these things as all being very much of a piece, and that is what I think the, the attraction of the singularity narrative is. Now, in saying that, I'm not saying that the implications of Moore's Law are to be discarded, that the information technology revolution is uh, is something to be just sort of ignored and tolerated until the collapse comes, which, you know, peak oil people like to say. Um, I think all of the trends that I've talked to people about, interviewed people about, are very serious, and they are very significant. But we there's this human predilection to uh, reject narratives that don't resolve themselves satisfactorily within the time frame of our own lifetime. Absolutely. I just want to cut it here just to say, like, from, from a perspective where I've been following this stuff for a long time, I mean, I was interested in the extropians in the early 90s. I mean, this has been part of my uh, fascination for a long time, you know, from the science fiction elements to the sort of pop technological uh, uh, presentations of these possibilities. But as a longtime student of religion, it, it's impossible not to just immediately see the the, the the sort of archetypal narrative happen again, and there's these, this this desire for a, a complete change, for a, an abrupt collapse followed by a renewal. It's so deeply structured in in the Western organization of history, of revelation, of judgment, and it's pervasive. It's a pervasive narrative. It underlies many secular narratives. It, under, it underlies Marxist narratives. To, to invoke a whole other you know line of of 
uh, you know, a post, supposedly post-religious attack. And so it's always been this weird situation of, like, if I'm in a conversation, I'm talking with some, you know, a super libertarian uh, character who's, you know, weaving these, these visions of what happens in a post-singularity situation, and at the same time, the language, the affect, the structure, it's just totally recognizable. I, I know it's, oh, yeah, yeah, you're doing this. And the two things, the, re, the sort of, you know, the, the technical reality or the potential, the possibility, the actual historical changes that are occurring, and this very familiar narrative gets so deeply uh, fused together. And so what I, what I wanted to, I'm you know, kind of curious, of course, what you're sort of replacing this disaster porn with. Uh, but one thing that I keep coming to is that, is that people don't want to acknowledge that, like, life is kind of a muddle, and there's just a lot of stuff going on all the time, and it's really complicated, and that's kind of what just kind of keeps happening in, in different ways sometimes more drastically, sometimes less so, but it doesn't have the satisfaction of a nice round ending or a nice punctured moment, uh, but in some ways I think it's a more livable place to be. But I'm curious how you're, how you're shifting, the, uh, shifting the narrative. Well, my, the shift that I'm, I'm trying to communicate is, is the one that I was just talking about, which is that these changes that various people are describing these forces, these processes, these are real things. They are at work. They have to be accommodated, and we have to take them into consideration. But the sorts of outcomes that people are envisioning are the sorts of outcomes that play out over very long periods of time, not the sort of thing that you see within a single human lifetime. Uh, these are what Yevgeny Morozov, in his book, Click Here to Save Everything, calls ethical changes. And people who are focused on those and who think that, say, information technology is going to bring about an ethical change, he derides such people as ethicalists. And I think that I, I personally have been oh, seduced by ethicalism in the past, varieties of it. When I started the Serum podcast, I was very much a singularitarian. And uh, a few years later, I was very much a, a peak oil collapsnik. Uh, and I think I was attracted to both of these because they are both, they represent ethical changes that would play out in my lifetime. And now I'm, I'm trying to reorient away from the, the shiny, sort of shiny mind candy of the ethical change and reorient and refocus my vision so I'm better able to spot what uh, John McChesney calls critical junctures. Because in, in our world that is ruled by big institutions, governments, corporations, uh, cartels, these institutions are, for the most part, very stable, very set. Uh, they, they, have, they occupy a niche with great robustness. But along comes a time that John McChesney calls a critical juncture, which is when you have a crisis in credibility for the institutions, you've got a rapid technological innovation and technological change which makes new things possible, and then combine those two with a political or economic crisis, and you, you have a critical juncture where you can influence existing institutions or bring into existence new institutions, which in this very fluid period, things take shape which then settle down and persist for a long time. And I think a critical juncture that we all live through, in which we may have missed the significance of it in the moment, although it's, it's hard to imagine that we did, is 
you know, within two months of 9-11, they passed the USA Patriot Act, which was not written after 9-11. That was, you know, a wish list of, of control that had been in existence for a while. The project for the New American Century had described, you know, had described that wish list a year previous to 9-11. And they said, we're waiting for a new Pearl Harbor event. And when that comes along, then we can make all these changes. And I think if we're focused on a technological singularity or the collapse of civilization or the dawning of the age of Aquarius or the rapture or any of these big, huge, epical changes which would remake the world in an instant, then we're going to miss the very sort of practical, pragmatic opportunities that critical junctures present to us. Uh, that's, a, that's a wonderful uh, whole set of ideas. <laughs> I don't even know which way to, uh, to, uh, to go with it directly. Um, maybe we'll uh, take a break here because um, it's coming up anyway. Uh, you're listening to Expanding Mind with uh, Eric Davis, and we're talking with KMO and well as Tom Barbelay. I have got the pronunciation correct, and we'll uh, come back talk more about a life in the cloud and the uh, political implications of that. All right. Welcome back to Expanding Minds. I'm Eric Davis. We're talking about artificial life in the cloud uh, with Camo and Tom Barbelay. Tom, I wanted to uh, come back to you. Um, it's, this is, you know, so many interesting avenues opened up here, but I'd like to focus a little bit on coming back to your ideas of simulation of artificial life and project a, a, a little for us or give us a sense of the kind of a juncture that we're at as these technologies and the, even the philosophies behind them uh, encounter the, this enormously expanded uh, computing potential uh, of the cloud. So, yes, I'm, I'm always, I'm always, I always enjoy listening to KMO rapping, um, particularly associated with 9/11 as an event. Uh, yeah, I, if, if I may just diverge here to talk about 9/11 as an event briefly, because I certainly have a long-term historical perspective associated with 9-11. And my view is that, you know, you need to go back to Algeria. You need to understand a wide variety of things. 9-11 is kind of like the Snowden of political things. Folks who have followed what has happened with, you know, networks and information, you know, back from the early 90s or even before had predicted the NSA, as Snowden has described it. And in fact, there's been a wide variety of bits and pieces of public information. And I still think the same is true with regards to 9-11 historically. But let's talk a little bit about what I'm, what I'm bringing forth here, um, particularly associated with what is going to happen with artificial life enters the cloud. My view is that this has already occurred, that basically, I mean, particularly the stuff that's come through with the NSA that many of us had already suspected and had come through various kind of public percolations. But here's the interesting part associated with this particular talk. Larry Yeager, although he's worked at uh, Apple and now works at Google, spends a period of time in academia. And when he was in academia, he worked very closely on metrics of intelligence. Now, it's relatively easy for me in an abstract sense to talk about survival and these kind of things in terms of metrics of intelligence. But Larry Yeager as a person 
has worked with psychologists, works with computer scientists and a wide variety of folk to actually create metrics of intelligence that's related primarily to his simulation, which is Polyworld. Uh, Polyworld shares some aspects with Noble Ape, but actually they're quite distinct simulations. But within Polyworld, he was able to see human-related metrics of intelligence that had been generated independently that he was able to code in and get agreement on with Polyworld specifically propagate through computer systems. So here we have a linking between human intelligence on one side, which had been measured with particular metrics, and metrics that Larry Yeager was able to put into Polyworld. What interests me is taking a simulation like Polyworld or a simulation like Noble Ape, and these are open source, public domain, anyone can get access to them. Anyone can come to these pieces of software and tinker with them, put in their own ideas, start experiments, run them for tens of thousands of years of simulated time. But initially in controlled environments, in single computer systems, maybe small networks of computers, small clusters of computers, what the cloud presents is an ability to take these open source simulations that, you know, the metrics have been put into already in comparative terms and start seeing what cloud computing actually means in a testable environment, in something that is, you know, on some level academically agreed upon, but on another level something that people can interact with. Because the kinds of systems that are being described, um, particularly, you know, private commercial systems or private government systems, are not things that people can get access to like they can these open source simulations. So what you do through that is you bring a, uh, well, as much of rigor as you can from the academic side of, you know, these, these independent metrics of intelligence, and you get to propagate them over vast systems of, of computers, vast numbers uh, of processing elements, and see actually what happens to predefined intelligence metrics when they are propagated over these systems. And what are the sorts of things that, that you uh, either anticipate finding or have already found in your sort of movements in this, in this direction? So I am very, very early days, and one of the reasons actually that I um, started this idea in terms of doing a talk and bringing KMO in, and originally we were going to have uh, Bruce Damer in, but hopefully in the future we'll have you participate as well, Eric, is to have a wide variety of thinkers come together and actually talk about this in a public sphere. So to get the discussion going in a public sphere, which means that folks from, you know, the singularity community and folks from other communities, academic and industry, can come into the sphere and have this discussion. To be perfectly clear, Noble Ape has been developed in particular its use at Apple and Intel very much on, you know, single computer or small networks of computers architecture and re-architecting Noble Ape and re-architecting a, a project like Polyworld is pretty non-trivial. And it's something that basically will probably take me and maybe two or three other people in the order of maybe a couple of years plus to actually get to the point where it needs to be. But the starting phase that I'm doing currently is just starting the discussion. I have an amazing kind of tapestry of minds in the San Francisco Bay Area that I want to kind of borrow from and use to motivate my own development. But also through this, I'm getting folks in academia and in industry and you know, potentially hobbyists and other, you know, folks, students, what have you, into this discussion as well to start to motivate potentially existing projects or potentially new projects that will move into this notion of what I guess I'm describing as the free or the open source cloud, which is distinctly different to aspects that we see in the cloud today, a kind of proprietary, 
you know, pay for service associated with cloud computing. Well, maybe I don't know which one of you guys want to want to take uh, take up this next question, but I think it would be really wonderful. Uh, just in researching this show, I, I learned some stuff. I got a better sense of really in what way the cloud is is different than what we think of as the internet, uh, technically, politically, economically. Uh, and so, if, if either of you could, uh, you know, or both of you could give just a little sense about the significance of this particular juncture in terms of the, the move towards these enormous uh, concentrated uh, computing resources and what an open cloud would be in contrast to what we're seeing now. I think I'm going to start. Okay, I'll start. I'm, I'm curious about Tom's answer to that last part, you know, what, what the open cloud is, because to my mind, well, the cloud start with is... the definition of the closed cloud, and then I'll move right. into my vision with regards to the open cloud. Sure. Well, the, the Internet, as, as most people know, or what we call the Internet, is really a variety of things. Um, and when I first got into it, to me, the Internet was basically Usenet, you know, text-based discussion forums, or the, uh, the well, the whole earth electronic link, and email, and that was the Internet. And then along came the web, and suddenly, you know, the web, uh, the Internet is, is Netscape and, and Mosaic, you know, the, the browsers of the time. And now we... Um, that was a system that was largely developed by the military uh, and by universities, and a lot of it was, was funded publicly, and it wasn't necessarily owned by anyone. But in the mid-'90s, much of what we considered to be the Internet was basically turned over to private corporations. And it, as that process has formalized and the sort of loose conglomeration of, of little city-states that used to be the Internet was was formalized and conglomerated into these these bigger nation states where bigger entities like Apple and Amazon and Google, they, they controlled or they, they offered storage and other services housed on their machines where, you know, the Internet was never a democracy, but it was certainly uh, sort of anarchic for a time. And it's, it's much more under the control of corporations now. And anybody who works for a corporation knows that a corporation is not a democracy. And, you know, you agree to service, to terms of service when you participate with Amazon or with Google or with Facebook or whoever. And they can determine at their discretion whether or not you are in compliance with those terms. And they don't even have to explain to you if they decide to, you know, restrict or deny you access to their cloud what it is that you've done that is not in compliance. They, it's just entirely up to their discretion. So, the, the cloud, at least as I understand it, is something that we have sort of stumbled into because we've discovered that it's a lot more fun and a lot easier and more convenient to access what we think of as the Internet through our cell phones and smartphones and our tablet computers and all of these devices that are running apps that, that channel your interface or your interaction with your data and with your computing processes in a very specific, domain-specific way. And it's, it's not the sort of, um, sort of melange or the panoply of, of overlapping networks and you're interfacing with them in a sort of uh, ever-shifting, arbitrary way. And it's much more locked down. It's much more controlled than it was a decade or so ago. Okay, and so that seems like a, a good place to kind of that with the, with the closed cloud vision, like, yeah. uh, and then there's some implications, of course, with the, you know, the, the, the recent uh, revelations, Snowden revelations, we realize how open these companies are to 
to the, the surveillance state, and then, you know, particularly in the United States, which of course has implications for the world, uh, the, the, the joy that is national security letters, which basically come with a gag order already in a part of the process, means that even uh, you know, honest and friendly large corporations are prevented from revealing the degree to which they are in cahoots uh, with this now now very nicely concentrated uh, amount of uh, of data that they that they sit upon. So we have, that's the closed one now. So give us a sense, Tom, of how you see an open source cloud emerging from this rather uh, claustrophobic situation, one might say. I can't disagree with KMO associated with the current situation. And I think certainly a number of us have been speculating. I mean, even from the emergence of the closed Internet associated with Internet models, and I've participated in solar Internet models, for example. And, you know, so my sense is that, firstly, yes, as bleak as the statement KMO has made associated with the current standing, I think we are now dealing with a group of thinking people who may be connected in some regard to one of these monopolies, as some of us tend to be, but in the long term have uh, you know, enough uh, independent thought, insight and um, communication that we can hypothesize associated with what an open cloud should look like and work towards that. One of the interesting things that I see coming from this consciousness in the cloud series is the idea that work, that actually once you have intelligent agents, open source intelligent agents that exist in this kind of environment, they can become employees of the cloud. And the previous economies, which had been relatively closed and relatively confined, confined in these agents' environments where, uh, for example, noble apes may, you know, go and work for um, a particular future entity or maybe a current entity to do particular items of work and then have, you know, other aspects of their cloud environment paid for by this work. The notion of the work economy within the cloud is still something which isn't particularly well defined, although there's a lot of open source in the cloud, which just means free and accessible software that can be, you know, optimized and then put out on these closed networks. I think there's a there's an ongoing discussion associated with what the cloud will mean in, you know, five to ten years, particularly in terms of active services. So, yeah, there is a strange economy that could come out of this, and I'm also very proactive both in terms of low-cost computing but also solar computing with the view that there may be potential for small farms to kind of develop and experiments to exist in a free or near-free cloud environment potentially where these ideas of work are propagated. I mean, it's quite interesting associated with the kind of independent community aspects that KMO has very solidly been a part of over the past five years, that these things can also exist in silicon fundamentally. And I think certainly this is a narrative that's been ongoing with a few of us, and particularly associated with the notion of the agent-based economy. is something that is still a very kind of early days narrative. Well, why, why don't we just stop there and, and, and just okay. try to maybe give, give a little bit more flesh to that, the, the agent-based econ- economy, something uh, involving the sort of fruition of, of some of this, the, of artificial life into essentially workers, think, uh, you know, intelligence that can get things done, that can be delegated tasks, that can uh, produce 
results and the kind of economy that, that would emerge out of that. So give, give me a little more sense of what, what you see that being. Well, there, there are half a dozen competing models associated with this, but I'll talk a little bit about my own idea in this regard. I think there are certain algorithmic ideas which can exist independently of closed computing. And here you have open source agents, which ultimately, yes, could be brought into you know, Amazon or what have you in a closed environment, but still have external properties. And I think it was in terms let's let's use a let's use a very current example of this of this. If you uh, currently interact with Facebook, for example, you have a wide variety of your interests and personal information and a wide variety of other things independent of what may be passed to the government used by this entity to create advertising for you, a kind of interaction which ultimately you are completely removed from in any kind of financial benefit sense, but ultimately gives you a relatively substandard user experience. I think there is an agent model, which I'm still in very kind of early days associated with formulating writing, where you actually own your agent in this environment. And actually, it's a different kind of relationship. It is, in fact, a new kind of social network environment where your agent exists and holds some of this information. And this is really a kind of post-Snowden technical discussion, which is yet to occur. But this notion that basically your agent holds some of your personal information and that in and of itself is a commodity that you can then choose to use potentially if you want to, you know, use your agent out in the Amazon salt mines as well. There are, there are things that you can do with your agent, but you have a greater holding of your, you know, your personal information basically as this agent has collected and your choice to share is ultimately an economic choice as opposed to just the way it is, which is the way it exists currently. Well, let, me, let me step in here with the, this, this idea that what, what popped into my head is, is a very interesting thing. In, in, in a way, it seems like to move into that model, which people, you know, some science fiction readers will be perfectly familiar with, that it requires acknowledging a kind of separation uh, between a digital agent or something or a proto-digital agent, a digital identity associated with an avatar, if you will, uh, and who we are, you know, just like me. I'm sitting here, I'm on the phone with you guys, whatever. And what we have right now is this weird, uh, this, you know, a, a phenomenon of popular consciousness where most people, I suspect, do not actually make very uh, strong boundary distinctions between the person who's on the phone and eating the breakfast and this sort of collection of now rather disparate digital information flows, uh, data networks of information, databases associated with identity, purchasing power, et cetera, et cetera. So in a way, it's almost like by acknowledging, by, by, by acknowledging that boundary, in some sense by alienating ourselves from this apparent sense that the Internet is this wonderful place to meet friends and pursue your desires, enjoy life, find out more, you know, that kind of stuff. Go, yes, all those things need to happen, but I'm also kind of alienated from that environment in a way that if I take advantage of, if I'm aware of, that could possibly move into a, a savvier world that has, uh, uh, where we're, we're less just sort of, uh, you know, kind of... Um, uh, like, I guess exploited uh, as, as sort of digital figures that are being used by these large corporations and data processes to amass these 
you know, uh, profiles and, and anticipate behavior, et cetera, et cetera. But what it requires us, in some sense, de- disconnecting to some degree from the sense that the Internet provides uh, the, the full range of, of, uh, of experience in an unmediated way. Does that make sense? Yes, now that's exactly the first step, which was you've, you've basically filled in the gap that I was about to talk to. That basically it requires a, I don't know, what the, the, the reshimming basically of the individual's relationship to these entities to the point where the information that the individual gives to these entities is no longer has the economic value to the shim that has been put between the individual and these, these entities. And I think that's an interesting first step agent model, which is certainly you know something that I'm sharing quite candidly with a, a number of folk and about shared with your audience accordingly, because I think that's an interesting model associated with how you actually start this progression towards greater understanding, but also ownership of oneself in these environments. Well, I, I want to invite Kevin to to, to uh, hop on in here. I was I'm calling you by both your names. I don't know how to do this. I'm confused. I'm in between avatars. Um, but well, I'd like to speak to that, actually. Yeah. Yeah. When I first started using the Internet in the, the early, mid-'90s, uh, my nickname was KMO. I had published a newspaper comic strip under that name, and I... KMO was just my KMO was my nom de net, and it was no there was no trouble there was no pressure to not do that, and so for a decade and a half I was KMO online and in many instances in in face to face real life interactions as well with no friction, and then over the last couple of years I, I think it's largely. It, largely started with my uh, my participation with Facebook, but there's been increasing pressure and resistance to KMO and, and more instances of people wanting me to identify myself as Kevin O'Connor. And I, I just have to point out that a surveillance state, a strong central governmental authority, and Internet companies who are very interested in compiling detailed dossiers on each of us for whatever reason, either to provide this to the government upon request with a national security letter or to provide this information to advertisers so that they can better target us and, and get us to cough up money for things that we don't really want or need or didn't know that we wanted until just recently, that all of these forces are in agreement, not necessarily in collusion, but they're in agreement that it is much more convenient for us to just use our NSA name, as Tom would say, uh, as our our first our front-facing persona to the world, and that these these internet personas, these avatars, these alternate identities that we like to dabble with, that these are being shunted off into very controlled little areas like massively multiplayer online games and and other places. And Facebook wants us, and Google wants us, and Apple and Amazon all want us to like put our driver's license down on the, the tabletop and say, this is the real me, this is the official me, and I, you know, I have to tie all of my online interactions to this thing, you know, to my driver's license, to my NSA name. And it's, it's a, something that I'm constantly fighting. And, yeah, and I mean, doesn't that, that model, that, or that set of, set, of, set of issues, the notion that to keep... Uh, uh, to keep a, a somewhat open space for us to move as individuals through our, our technical environment, we need to have a, a kind of wiliness and ability to to uh, don masks and to hide sometimes and to uh, at least make things more confusing. 
Um, does that run against, Tom, the idea that in order to sort of uh, take this whole situation to the next level politically and economically, that we actually have to, in some sense, make our agents I have identities that are even more kind of coherent and in some ways tied to us. Is there a, is there a way to square that circle, or is this kind of like a fundamental uh, conflict in these models? So can I talk to the specifically associated with Kevin O'Connor, a.k.a. KMA, and my experience associated with <laughs> Absolutely. Just to let you know, we're, asking, I, I, you know, we're whining. We only have a few, few more minutes, but it, we're going to keep on going anyway, so go at it. <laughs> I, I referred earlier on in my conversation to my time dealing with a young Julian Assange, and actually through this period was when I encountered a number of people that used pseudonyms quite heavily. Julian Assange was one of them. Uh, in order to behave in ways that they believed was fundamentally nefarious. My view is that you can't have a political or a social or any kind of organic discussion independent of the NSA state et al. unless you have a unique identifier. And you have to be coherent in the way in which you behave and not live in fear in order to actually have this discussion. Because if you live in fear, you're not going to have the quality of the discussion that you need to have. You need to basically identify yourself in a unique fashion. Now, I'm considerably more unique than Kevin is in terms of names. <laughs> but I believe very strongly that if you don't identify yourself as a unique entity in some of these circumstances, you can then be seen by a vast majority of your potential future detractors as being not worthy of a participant in the discussion. And it's interesting, actually, associated with Assange specifically, because the way in which he behaved prior to WikiLeaks is ultimately what is used substantially against him and frames the WikiLeaks narrative. And I think in Kevin's case, what he referred to when we talked about this four, maybe three, four years ago, was that he saw KMO as a more unique representation of himself because there were other Kevin O'Connors that, that he knew of and interacted with, and that was the original framing of the kind of KMO. I mean, that's certainly what came through in our kind of public discussion. But I'm, I don't like pseudonyms. I think that in particular when people have made threats against me personally, a majority of them have been under pseudonyms and it's actually taken time to resolve those pseudonyms. So I feel very strongly that if you feel you need to hide your identity because you feel that the state is going to work actively against you, you need to understand what your responsibility is with the state in this kind of interaction first and foremost. It's almost like a political realisation that you need to make, and independent of what these entities are going to use against you, you need to understand that part of being a functioning entity in any kind of an environment is your ability to stand as yourself in all circumstances. So is that, a, is that do you see that as being, uh, 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 we're not actually able to have that conversation or to, to think th thoroughly through that line of, uh, of reasoning until we have a more uh, dependable situation politically? Or do you think that, that, that one could come to that conclusion now? I mean, I, uh, meaning... Is there, aren't there still very, very good reasons, both in the United States and particularly in, in other uh, countries where they're, they're under more explicitly, you know, very explicit totalitarian regimes, that there's still a lot of reason to distrust the state and therefore want to hide 
Uh, uh, I'm not, I'm not arguing that there are, there aren't, that's not my point. My point is exactly that one should distrust the state, but if you don't understand your relationship to the state, then basically the state is going to continue and in fact expand the nefarious power that the state is accused of or actually has in any given circumstance. There's a very strong notion that if you have an educated people that are actively motivated and working in a variety of different ways that the state has to, you know, react to that. I mean, Egypt is a very strange kind of example, counterexample, but there are other examples in the world. And what's curious about the United States in particular is that there is such a large educated population here, and yet the state is able to take such liberties with regards to the population. It's remarkable, especially given our supposed national character. I mean, I I grew up thinking that the the, the best thing about the United States, the thing that united the, the freaky radicals that I was familiar with and the the, the crazy kooky right wingers was this kind of uh, fetish for you know individualism and independence and all this and I've just been astounding to see that just the collapse of it even it's just a position let alone a thought through position uh, it's it's been one of the more disheartening things about the uh, the last bit but we're, uh, we're we're winding up time so I want to give I want to give uh, Kevin Slash camo a little response maybe maybe even to set up the the conversation you're going to have uh, on the 19th. Um, and, and then we can wrap it up. Already, I hear the, the back. Oh, wait, no, they're bringing it in, man. I think that might have been it. So just re- why don't you re- reiterate the information about the, uh, the conversation? Don, would you do that? It's August 19th at Netflix. The doors open at 6.30 p.m. It's through the front foyer into the main theater. The doors, unfortunately, will close at 7 p.m. promptly, so folks need to get in early at 6.30. But it's going to be Kevin, Larry Agar, and myself rapping. We'll take audience questions. It could degenerate as this hour has done. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks, uh, Tom and Kevin, for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you. All right, for, uh, for me, it's all you out there. Keep your minds open. <laughs>